Today's reading comes from Genesis 49, 28, through verse, chapter 50, verse 26. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. All of, the, all of these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing stable, suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury, with, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Marm, in the land of Canaan, with Abraham, which Abraham brought bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abram and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. For 40 days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seven days, 70 days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, Please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all of the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abelmazram. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpethah. As to, at, uh, to the east of Marm, which Abraham brought with the field, bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father Joseph, returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. 
His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Mashir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abram and Isaac and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Here ends the reading. Thanks, Felicia. You may be seated. You may have noticed over the last several weeks there have been long readings, and Felicia did great. Um, we made it. This is the last section in Genesis, and uh, as I told some of you, even this last week, it's always bittersweet for me when we finish a book. I've come to enjoy um, Genesis. It has made a big impact on me. In fact, when we started this series in Genesis, I don't know if you remember, maybe not, but I took an entire message to stress the significance and the importance to study the Old Testament. And Paul himself, even in Romans 15.4, he says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. And Genesis has not... Like, it has been faithful to that standard. It has not left me wanting. I have found myself increased in hope. And I have found that I have come to enjoy even further the God who has been faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in spite of them. I had the privilege in 2009 to take a class from Dr. Howard Hendricks. Some of you might be familiar with who he is. He's a historically prominent professor known for teaching over some 10,000 students over the course of his lifetime at Dallas Theological Seminary. He was known to being on the radio and on the TV quite some time and uh, had quite uh, a passion for teaching God's Word in a way that people could read it and then learn to apply it to their own lives. And so I had the privilege to take one of his last two classes at Dallas Theological Seminary. And I sat there and I remember watching him and thinking and, and knowing that he's, this guy's old. <laughs> and yet he was so biblically aware of what was happening in the text that I just wished that there was a way that we could take that information and impute it into somebody else's mind to preserve it. And 
to, to be frank, that's just not how it works. In order to know the truths of Scripture, we ourselves have to learn it. One thing I loved about Dr. Howard Hendricks was his one-liners. He was, he was known for just saying these quick little statements that just stayed with you. One of my favorites that he that I've used since then is, you need friends who aren't impressed with you. And it doesn't count your children as one of them, right? Like, you need people in your life that who are your friends who will speak directly to you and tell you as it is and not be impressed with whatever position or status you're in. Who are just friends. Another one that really has stayed with me is if you want to know what a man believes, stand next to him as he dies. Because a man or a woman will not waste his breath. Where we find ourselves. Book of Genesis ends with two men. And these two men could be, like we can totally contrast them from worlds apart. I mean, Jacob has lived historically a rebellious life. I mean, when he started out his life, he's fighting his brother in the womb of his mother. His mother's like, what in the world is happening within me? And Jacob wrestles his whole life against the standard and will of God. In fact, he deceives his brother even after birth multiple times. He deceives his father. He creates chaos in his family between Leah and Rachel. The dysfunctionality that exists even within his sons is due to this man's issues. You could put him on one side and you could contrast him by his son, Joseph, who is an entirely different man. He waits. He never reaches out for that which is not his. In fact, he is a righteous man by the standard of Genesis and which is not modeled by anyone other. He always, even while he was in prison, waits upon the Lord to come to his aid. Even while he was put into the pit, he did not allow, by his brothers, allow that atrocity to become something which embittered him towards his family. Genesis ends with two men who have lived two different lifestyles before God. And fascinating, these two men come to the same perspective concerning God. Which gives me hope. It gives me a ton of hope. Because we recognize that sometimes the righteous, when they live their life right, then they will somehow have this unique perspective about God because of the righteous living. Jacob comes to the same conclusions about God, even though he wrestled his whole life with him. And all I want to do in our last look, the few minutes that I have left, is consider those two reflections about God what they came to know who God was in light of their own traditions. And what I have come to realize and what I've come to enjoy about the concluding words of Genesis is that God is so faithful.
And the good news, if there's anything about Genesis, it's whether you are a rebellious man like Jacob or his sons, or whether you are a righteous man like Joseph, you can trust me. And God uses all things to further his good. So with that, with the ringing in our ears, you want to know what a man believes, stand next to him as he dies. Jacob ends his story confident in who he is in the Lord. Let's look at his perspective. One, he, on his deathbed, he acknowledges his trust in the promises which God had given him. In Abraham's life and in Isaac's life, you see the repetition of God constantly reminding them, I will multiply you, I will make you fruitful, I will give you this land as a possession. Jacob is the recipient of those promises. And he reminds us, we didn't read it in this reading this morning, but in Genesis 48, 4, as he gathers his son around his bed, this is what he says. And he said, this is what God said to me. Behold, I will make you fruitful, and I will multiply you, and I will make you a company of people, and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Elsewhere, Jacob has also been promised that the land is yours as well. Not just you, but also your descendants will enjoy this land. And the reader might wonder what's going on as when you get to see Jacob, when he goes before Pharaoh, he goes, I'm just a sojourner. Egypt's not my land that God has promised me. God has promised me a different land. And as G Jacob begins to talk to his sons around his bed, as he dies, Jacob lets his sons have it in Genesis 49. Some of them he blesses, and some of them he curses. Reuben is cursed for the way that he has lived. Simeon and Levi have their own challenges. Judah, the one who has finally repented and brought the brothers to a right standing between Jacob and Joseph, is the man who gets blessed. But in this meeting around the bed, as Jacob describes his hope, he says this about God. Mind you, mind you, Jacob's the one who's always wrestled against God. And this is what he's come to realize about God after the days of wrestling. Genesis 48, 15. And he blessed Joseph, Jacob, and he said to him, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Jacob wrestled against God. And at the end of his life, after all the wrestling, his perspective of God wasn't a God who was vindictive or cruel, but a God who has been incredibly patient to shepherd along, him along according to his promises. For me, my grandfather was a shepherder, and I always was jealous of him 
Because when I went onto the farm to see the sheep, do you know what the sheep did? They ran away from me. And they're cute, but they don't trust you. And when my grandfather came, the sheep would just huddle around him. And if I was next to grandpa, you could touch the sheep. Why? Because the sheep had come to know my grandfather as trustworthy. And when I think about the way that Jacob describes God as a shepherd, Genesis is entirely important to us, as Paul reminds us in Romans. Why do you study the scriptures, even the old? Because it gives you hope. The God of this world is not vindictive and a control freak, but rather he cares for people as a shepherd. I think of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. When I think of Psalm 23 and I think about the idea of God being a shepherd, you know what comes into my mind? Ireland. I think of the grass fields in which sheep might enjoy, and that's my God who would lay me down in such vast pastures. That's not what Jacob has come to realize who God is. Think like the, the ancestors of Israel. In fact, even when Psalm 23, 1 was written, do you want to know what it looks like? Here, I got a picture. In the fields of which they shepherd, this is what they shepherd in. It is not the fields of Ireland. It is rather a desolate, wanting place. But yet in the midst of it, next, is a picture of a place where God shepherds the sheep to places where there is food. Jacob, when asked by Pharaoh, how has been your life? Jacob has said, rough. Very few days have been good. I've been in more desert than more than in green pastures. And as he sits in his bed around his sons, the God that I have come to know, the one whom I have wrestled me, has shepherded me. He has brought me along the way and has showed me his faithfulness to me. He just shows up right when I needed him. I have known that to be true. In fact, one of the reasons why we named the church Reliance, I can tell you time and time again that God has just showed up in the nick of time. I fear fear to use the illustrations again to sound repetitive because I'm sure that some of you have been familiar with them. But when I was first starting out my journey in pursuing biblical education, I was a farmer, son of a farmer. My father, who's a farmer, could not pay for his children to go to college. And one of my memories in which I can actually relate to Jacob in this area, God has been my shepherd. Paying for college is not cheap. I worked all summer thinning apples. It doesn't pay well. And as a result, I had had enough money and I went to go to the register to pay for the tuition of that semester only to find I had enough for half the tuition. Walking away, getting in my car, driving to work, I started to become anxious. 
And a result of the anxiety, I found myself, I can remember the turn and division road in Spokane, Washington, as it goes up the hill, up to the mall, and thinking, oh, if God wants me to be here, he'll provide. And when I got to work, my boss said, hey, we're just throwing a bonus at you. Here's 300 bucks. It's moments like that where you get to remember that God's with you. And that, that, that God doesn't sometimes give us the fields of Ireland as a response to the needs in front of us, but rather just enough to know that the shepherd's stick is right there guiding us on the paths where he wants us to go. And I know that is the case for you as you try to discern where the Lord would might want you to go. Jacob's conclusion on his deathbed is, God has been my shepherd. In a land that's been difficult, one done by my own hand, God has been patient, redirecting me along the way. Why would that be important for us? I think it would be important for us is sometimes we tend to think that we will mess up God's plan for our life because we take the wrong turn. That's not the God of Genesis. The God of Genesis, yes, he is gracious like a shepherd to redirect his children where they must go. Jacob is an example of this as he has wrestled with God all of his life and he has been shepherded to where he is supposed to be in Egypt. And he has now come to realize as he sits in his bed and he sees 12 sons. Remember, Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac had Jacob and Esau, but Jacob has now 12 sons. God said he would multiply and make me fruitful, and I see it. God has been faithful to his promises. He has done that which he said he will do. He has shepherded me. And yet, the meeting around the bed, he says in verse 18 of chapter 49, he's not done. I wait, Genesis 49, 18, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. You promised me the land. You've been faithful in providing children. You have shepherded me, but the fulfillment of your promises haven't occurred. And what's striking about Jacob in this statement is he's about to die. And he knows. Like if you turn over to Genesis chapter 49 where the reading was done today, verses 29 through 50, Jacob does not refer to himself as one who dies, but rather as one who's going to be buried. In fact, as he dies, he just slip his feet into the bed as if he is sleeping. Genesis is fascinating in that it starts with paradise, a perfect world with no sin, 
And it ends with two men in a coffin waiting for the God who is faithful to his promises to fulfill them. And Jacob says, I'm waiting, and I know God is faithful. I think about this. We're talking like four or 5,000 years that Jacob and Joseph have been waiting. But where do I want to wait? Not here in Egypt. So he tells his sons, take me to the place in which God promised me. Bury me there. Notice what he says here. Genesis 49. He's explicit. He doesn't want them to be confused. Verse 29 of 49. He commanded them. It's not a request. This is not up for negotiation. And when a man is dying, you don't argue with him. And he said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave. Is that is in the field of the Ephron the Hittite. It's like, you know, a farmer. Yeah, you pass the tree, go past the mailbox, turn, take a right. This is Abraham's doing. The cave in the field. Oh yeah, no, there's this. Verse 30. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a bearing place. And notice what he says. It's often missed in verse 31. You, you, you might suspect that when you get to the end of his lineage as he's sinking through Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, and Rebekah, that he will conclude with a different wife. Look what he does. There, in that place, they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife, and they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, and there I buried, and you suspect to read Rachel, but it's not the woman he loved. But Leah, striking, is it not? After you've walked through Genesis and you see the way that Jacob responds to Leah, this is indeed striking. And if you take, let me get nerdy just for one moment. If you take what he's doing in the chiastic structure, it puts him on the front end. And if you put the letters in order, it spells Israel. Take Israel to the place of Israel where God has given us the promises. Jacob has wrestled his whole life with this God. And he's seen some of the promises fulfilled. You want to know what a man believes. You stand around him at his bedside. And what does Jacob believe? God has been my shepherd. I've seen some of his promises fulfilled, and he's not done. I am waiting for the salvation of the Lord. So go marry me in the place that he's going to go fulfill it. It's cool. It's amazing that there is a people in the very beginning, we're talking 4,000, 5,000 years, that are not perceiving death as the final for our humanity. But rather that God has been one who is shepherding people back towards him through his promises. That's Jacob. Joseph. Joseph clearly is a man of different status than his father. While Jacob strove at every cost to try to find some sort of vantage for the blessing, he 
is contrasted to Jacob as a man who waits. He waits in his father's household. He waits in Egypt for 22 years, which is brought from the prison to the second most powerful position of Egypt. And he gets through all those seasons because he waited upon the Lord who was with him. And these two individuals come to the same conclusion. And believe it or not, Joseph is made aware of an issue within his family, his brothers. Fear that Joseph has been putting up with his brothers simply because dad is around. This is normal, right? You don't understand this. When the, when the parents are at home in the house, the children act differently than when the parents are gone outside of the home. You're not fooling anyone, children. We know there's a little bit more liberal life when the parents are gone. And his brothers fear that now that dad is gone, Joseph is now going to take vengeance. And so they don't want to go before Joseph. No. So they send a messenger. And look what he says, the messenger. Genesis 50, verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph (laughs) saying, Hey, Dad said, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin. Because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servant of God, your father. And Joseph wept when he, when they spoke to him. Joseph's already forgiven him. Yet, with the reality set before them, they still fear. Now Jacob, or excuse me, now Joseph is going to take his vengeance. In the very beginning of Genesis You have a couple placed in the garden or to tend over God's creation. And this servant comes. And and he asks them, no, don't eat of the tree, the fruit of evil. If you eat of the tree of evil, you are going to be like God. That's how the story ends. But it begins, excuse me, and it ends with Joseph saying this. He is unlike his forefathers, grandparents, Adam and Eve, who strives for the position which God holds for himself, but rather leaves the things to God to God and he assumes his right position. And he says this, verse 19, And Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for for am I in the place of God. Vengeance, is not a responsibility that God has given to me. Remember, these words are familiar in that you read them in the very beginning and then you read them halfway through the story. Jacob heard them before from his wife, Rachel. And he says, she says to him, give me a child. Remember? And Jacob, in frustration, turns to Rachel, am I in the place of God? God is the one who establishes life, and he's the one who gives life, but it is God who puts life in the womb. Am I in the place of God? 
Joseph affirms the idea of vengeance for sin that you have experienced does not reside in humans' position or right, but rather in the hand of God. What you did, yeah, it was evil, just as Father did, that Dad said. But that category of responding in vengeance, that's not in my hand. I'm giving it to God. And then he says, the good news of Genesis. Verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. You truly did. Through and through, everything that you wanted to do was evil. But God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph, in his last days, is going to confirm that the God who is sovereign over everything is also sovereign over every human interaction. And this is the good news. And which Genesis brings out before you and I to enjoy is that God's authority and sovereignty can use anything for his good. And I know that when I say that, some might think, then what does my will have to do anything with it? I don't care. Only in the sense that we have a God who can work through Jacob's wrestling and save him. We have a God that can work through Jacob's sons and produce glory. That Joseph is this individual that recognizes that whatever might exist, that God can look through it and produce glories. If we don't have a God that can do such things like this, there's no hope. Genesis would end Genesis chapter 3. And yet for 47 chapters, we learn about a God that not only can work with righteous people like Joseph, but the unrighteous like Jacob and produce glories throughout the world and save them. The God which is being revealed in the book of Genesis can work through the schemes of men and do great things, good things. And this is the hope of which the Old Testament begins with. And Joseph then says, 22, 26, the same scenarios unfolded. Joseph is put in a bed. Sons are placed around him. And the righteous man who has lived his whole life depended upon the Lord. He's not even the he doesn't even get named here. He's actually, if you notice, up to this point, it's, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Never says, and Judah, and Joseph, and Reuben, and Simeon. Doesn't say that. What Joseph does here is that he connects himself in the faith in which God has shepherded these people to the promises that were given to these men as his own. And so he says, I'm about to die. 
And I have seen the faithfulness of God in my own life, shepherding me along the way. And he says in verse 24, God will visit you. He's going to deliver you out of Egypt. He's going to be faithful to his promises. And like his fathers, he says, take me. Take me with you when he comes. God will surely visit you. Verse 25, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Joseph died being 110 years old. Like, how do you end a book? They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Strange story. Genesis starts, paradise, and a man in a coffin waiting. Oh, no. Genesis starts with paradise and ends with two men waiting. Hoping in a God who can work out even through death and fulfill his promises. And it's this theology, let's conclude, point three. It's this theology which drives the very first sermon in the church. Like, this idea of a God who can work through every circumstance through the schemes of men and produce glories. The reason why we, all, we study the Old Testament is true, as Paul said, whatever was written in former days, it was written for our instruction that through endurance and through any encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And the truth of the matter is, is that when you get to the end of Genesis, you become prepared to now read the Gospels. Remember Jesus. He taught in John chapter 8, your father Abraham, he rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. He was glad the man, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they die in faith. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. When Jacob sees Esau after 20 years plus not seeing his family, he sees Esau and he says, oh, I see the face of God on you. And that you forgive forgiven. The patriarchs had an idea of what was going to come. It wasn't a foreign reality. Bury me in Israel. Hey, when, when God takes Israel out of Egypt, don't, don't leave me behind. They were men who died in faith. Knowing someone was coming. And they believed in a God who could work through the schemes of men and save them. Acts 2, 22. This man who lived the life, who said he was the one connected to Abraham in all of history. Peter says this to this nation of Israel. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, you saw this Jesus, 
He was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. There is a God who knows all things and is able to work out goodness and glories through the schemes of men. And then he says, you crucified him. You did it willfully. Praise God that there is a God who can work through the schemes of men. You killed him. You crucified him and killed by the hands of lawlessness. Lawless men that God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And here we see in Christ the promise which was given to Jacob and Joseph of the one who can give them the hope of their resurrection in which they will enjoy the land which was promised to them. Which Jesus himself said, one question, God's not God of the dead. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. They're just two men in a coffin waiting for the salvation of the Lord. You want to know what two men believe. You get it here in Genesis 48, 49, 50. They believe in a God which has been incredibly patient to them and brought them to the point to see him as faithful to his promises and they died in faith, waiting. And you and I are on the same journey. I want to conclude with this in our convictional response. God was so patient to Abraham he was so patient to Isaac. He was so patient to Jacob and the 12 sons. As we go on our way to come to know who God is truly as he shepherd us, may we be the people that give the same patience towards one another as God has given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that all of us, as we lay down with our families around us, hear us say the same thing. God's faithful. He has been faithful to me my whole life and I will die waiting for the hope upon Christ which was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this would not be the last time we're in Genesis and practice Lord, we have been at it for 10 months now. We now know how to read it.